First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Sometimes I feel like when I come to church, I'm getting spiritual whiplash. Or maybe it's not when I come to church, maybe when I leave church. I'll tell you what I mean. You know, when I'm here with you all on a Sunday morning, I feel like it's in some ways so easy to worship the Lord and treasure Christ and celebrate the gospel and ooh and awe at the salvation we've received. You know, when when I'm singing with you all about what Christ has done for us, when we're listening to the choir, you know, just rock out with a song like that praising the lamb who was slain and and when we pray the gospel and when, and we preach the gospel and then even after the service when we're standing around just sharing the things the lord has been teaching us you know it's it's amazing being here with you it's it's so in some ways effortless because all these people are gathered together agreeing and gathered around the truth that Jesus Christ is is everything and that his salvation is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And we're all like, yes! And then we get in our cars, and we drive out of this parking lot into a world that doesn't think any of that, that doesn't think Christ is the center, that doesn't think that the salvation that Jesus has won for us is the best news ever in the world. You know, and, and, and it's like whiplash, which is it? Is Christ and his gospel the greatest thing ever, or is it not important at all and just kind of a personal private belief that may help you if you need that sort of thing? Like, like which is it? I go home and I turn on TV. I'm like, well, there's important things going on in the world. Presidential debates. I'll watch one of those, and I, I listen, and here's people vying to become the most powerful person in the free world. I mean, this is certainly important things going on, and I'm listening 
You, you know, where's the debate question that says, uh, let me ask you, you know, candidate, uh, what do you think about the fact that God has sent his only son into the world to save a new people and that he plans to establish his kingdom forever? What do you think? You know, I'm like waiting for that question. When are the candidates are going to react to the most important news in the world? Of course, that, that's a ridiculous rhetorical question to you because it's never going to be asked. Then I think, well, maybe during the commercials in between the presidential debates. You know, what, what's the big news that we're all, we all need to hear about? A car commercial, okay. You know, then a commercial for a restaurant, and then another car commercial. What's with all the car commercials? And, and you know, another one, another one. And then I'm like, there's no commercials promoting Christ. And you know, you go to your workplace and it's not really talked about in staff meetings. You go to your schools, your teachers aren't giving lectures on Jesus and his salvation. Certainly not what the kids are talking about in the locker room during sports. It's so strange when I'm in my growth group or I'm in the youth group or the Sunday school class, Christ is everything. And when I'm out in the world, he's nothing, it seems, or he's treated that way, I should say. And so there's this tension that we live in as Christians, as the way Peter would put it, elect exiles. We are, Peter's been helping us think through, and he's going to continue to help us think through in this letter of 1 Peter, what it means to be God's chosen people, to be God's saved people, and yet live as expatriates, live as foreigners and aliens in a world that doesn't value Christ at all where Christ is not exalted and loved and treasured as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and how do we inhabit that tension? And so what Peter wants to do, especially here in chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, what we've been studying for the last few weeks, is he wants to just kind of like stoke up our awe and our wonder at our salvation. Because he knows that when we're out in the world, the cold winds of unbelief are going to chill it down. And, and so he's, he's trying to, to help us. So this is the first step in living as Christians in a post-Christian culture is that we need the fires of joy and excitement and awe and wonder at Christ and our salvation burning really bright inside of us because it's not going to happen out there. <laughs> that, that, that there's going to be a different message. There's going to be a different reality, a, a different mental habitat outside of the community of faith. So we need to stoke it up. So that's what Peter's been doing. In the last several Sundays, we've been looking at verses 3 to 9, just kind of pawing our way through it uh, week by week. And so we, we sort of conclude this opening ooing and awing section. And, and Peter wants us to, to think now about the fact that the gospel of Jesus is the great news of history. This is what God has been doing. So look at verse 10. He says, "...concerning this salvation." The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So Peter's like, let me tell you something else about the salvation you have. The prophets were searching and studying, trying to find out when all of this would happen. Now, who are the prophets he's talking about in verse 10? That's the Old Testament prophets, the prophets before the coming of Jesus, the prophets who were predicting the gospel and predicting the coming of Jesus. All of the Old Testament 
points us to Christ. He's the fulfillment of everything that came before. And so, so the prophets were, were searching intently. You know, the prophets of the Old Testament, they have the Spirit of Christ in them. Isn't that interesting in verse 11? The Spirit of Christ was in them because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And, and so they were there in the Old Testament times, and they were getting, uh, you know, words and visions and impressions and communications from the Holy Spirit that was pointing them forward to Jesus. It was, they, they were seeing the glory of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus and the salvation that Jesus would bring. And so, so they started, look at, I love that in verse 10, they searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances. So here they are getting these impressions. And so they're thinking like, when is this going to happen? God is going to do something great. He's going to raise up a Messiah who's going to save a people for himself and bring God's kingdom. And they're like, when is this? Where is this? And so they're searching and trying to figure it out. Let me give you an example of the kinds of prophecies that the prophets of the Old Testament received. I'm just going to give you one. Put a bookmark here in 1 Peter and turn to the the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? He's probably got one of the best names for a prophet, I would say. Um, And I also also like Jeremiah. I've just been reading him recently in my own uh, Bible reading time. Um, You know, I, I do one of those read through the Bible in a year programs. And right now, I just happened to meet Jeremiah, and it's, it's a good program. I don't know if you've ever done Read Through the Bible in a Year. I can, you know, just email me. I can give you the, the program I use. It's great. Uh, but anyway, I'm in Jeremiah. Jeremiah's been talking about the Messiah. So look at Jeremiah chapter 23. It's on page 773 in your pew Bibles. Jeremiah 23, page 773. And here's a prophecy that Jeremiah had. This was almost six centuries before the coming of Jesus. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Wow, what a prophecy. Jeremiah lived in a really miserable time of of spiritual apostasy. And so here's God saying, King David, that we just read about, gave him Goliath, that King David is going to have a branch. In other words, a descendant. So David's like the tree and the branch is going to come out. Maybe David's line is like a stump and a branch is going to come out. A new branch is going to be new growth. You thought the tree got killed by the winter. No, there's new growth. God's going to raise a branch. He's going to be a king and he's going to do what's just and right in the land. God is going to establish a righteous king. Could you imagine it? A politician and a leader who always does what's just and right? That sounds like a miracle. And God is going to save a people. And this is the name of the king. Oh, what's his name? Verse 6, the Lord our righteousness is the name of the king. That's a name. (laughs) Yahweh our righteousness is this name. So, you can just imagine Jeremiah. I don't know how he got this prophecy. I don't, I don't know how the prophets heard these things. Maybe they heard an audible voice and they wrote it down. Could you imagine getting that prophecy? You're in the Old Testament. We're not in the New Testament. Pretend you're still in the Old Testament. You'd be like, what? When is that going to happen? Is he here? Wait, oh, we could really use this guy right now. When is this happening, Lord? You know, crickets. 
Lord, you can't just give me this. And so, so Jeremiah wants to know. Or let me show you one more in Jeremiah. Turn over to chapter 31. Here's another prophecy of salvation. This is a very famous one. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. So chapter 31, verse 31. And this is a, another famous prophecy of Jeremiah about the future salvation that God was going to bring. It says in verse 31, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the, to- the covenant I made with their forefathers and I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So this covenant, the, the thing that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai, the defining moment in Israel's history is broken because Israel has apostatized. And so now God says, I'm gonna make a new covenant. A new covenant, it's, that's huge. And it's not going to be like the old one that got broken. What's it going to be like? Verse 33, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time. I'll put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. Not two big stone tablets that Moses carries down the mountain. The law is going to be on our hearts. We're going to want to do what God says. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, a man his brother, saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. In this new covenant, if you're in the covenant, you'll know God yourself. You won't have to have anyone telling you who God is. I mean, we can learn about him more, but you'll know him personally. And then, oh, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness. I mean, think about all the stuff that haunts you from your past, stuff you've done that you're ashamed of, that, that just still gets you. And God's like, I'm not going to remember that. Why do you still remember it? I don't. You're forgiven. What an amazing prophecy. And so imagine, again, you're Jeremiah, and you've got this prophecy. And you're going, wow, okay, when is this going to happen, Lord? And is this connected to the king prophecy I just got? Where is it? And so Jeremiah's trying to figure it out. And, and it's it doesn't happen in his lifetime. He's, 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 he's got this secret information about this great thing God is doing in the world. And it's like he's the only one who knows about it, and he doesn't know, you know how it's all going to come together. You know, it's kind of like, it, I kept having this, this analogy. I don't know, this could be a bad analogy. But as I was thinking about the situation of the prophets in the Old Testament, it's kind of like they're people who've discovered a conspiracy theory. You know, I, I, except like a good conspiracy theory. I don't know if you, if you get into conspiracy theories. I know, I know some of you do. Some of you like your conspiracy theories. You're convinced, you're convinced that there really are aliens in Roswell, New Mexico, and that the government is using that technology from the alien spacecraft to develop the iPhone, and that's why we have that, right? And some of you are convinced that there really is a secret group called the Illuminati, who are secretly guiding multinational conglomerates to take over the world, and that even the dollar bill has the pyramid in the eye, and you know, so we love our, <laughs> we love these conspiracy, conspiracy theory movies are awesome. This, you know, and, and they're always the same. There's some massive force at work in the world that nobody knows about that's secret, 
and, and it's shaping world events, and we're just going along like mindless sheep in the world. And there's this, these secret forces that, that are shaping the world. And in, in these conspiracy movies, there's always some journalist or somebody who finds out about the conspiracy, right? And then they're like trying to tell everybody about the conspiracy, and of course no one believes them. And then, you know, the Illuminati are chasing them, and they're running for their life trying to expose the conspiracy. But it appears that there is a divine conspiracy, though it is good news, not bad news. That there is a great plan and a great purpose afoot in the world, that history is not just stumbling forward blindly. It's not just people randomly stumbling through life, that God has a great purpose for human history that he has been developing. And it's been popping out through his prophets all through history. And the prophets are like, what is this? What is going on, God? What's the answer? And so now go back to 1 Peter. Here's the amazing thing. Concerning this, this, great, <laughs> this great thing that God is doing in the world, God's great plan for all of history to save a people, to gain glory for himself, to forever vanquish sin and evil, this plan predicted by the prophets, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, you Christians, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So what the prophets were trying to figure out and they couldn't put, it all, put all the pieces together and it was just glimpse and bits and pieces and impressions, you have in full in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that when, you, when someone tells you that Jesus came from heaven as the king of, of God's kingdom and that he died, the king died on a cross to pay for our sins and he rose again and he's coming again and that now through Jesus you can be forgiven and have a new life. But that simple gospel that we just take for granted is, is the conspiracy revealed to the world and is now running like wildfire to the ends of the earth as more and more people come to faith in Christ. This is God's great plan, and it's now been revealed to you. And so those prophets who wanted to know when all this would happen, what they figured out was this wasn't for them. In other words, it wasn't for their time. It was for our time, as the gospel is now being revealed and laid out for us. What an incredible privilege. You know who really put all this together for Peter was Jesus. The reason Peter figured all this out is because Jesus explained it to him. Look at this. One more text. Put a bookmark here in 1 Peter again. We'll come back. But go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. It's on page 1047. Luke 24, page 1047. And this is the story of when Jesus himself connected all the dots and revealed the conspiracy. Jesus was the one who went public with the whole conspiracy. So look at Luke chapter 24, verse 13. So just to set a little background, this is the first Easter. Okay? Jesus has just risen from the dead. This is the first Easter. The disciples don't know what's going on. There's all these reports that Jesus rose from the dead, and they're freaking out. And so there's these disciples walking along the road, and suddenly the risen Jesus appears next to them. Look at verse 17. 
And so Jesus asked them, he said, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? You don't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. And they came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. I love it. They basically just explained the whole gospel. They're like, this guy Jesus is powerful in word and deed, and then he died, and we thought he was going to redeem us. Hmm. But he, we think he, we, here he rose again. We don't know what, hey, this makes sense. Like, they just summed up the whole gospel, and they didn't even know what they're saying. So verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Man, that is one Bible study I wish I could have been at. I love that. And he didn't stop there. Later that night of Easter number one, he appeared to his disciples. So the, the rest of the disciples are in a locked room and they're all freaking out and they didn't know what to make of this. So verse 36, while they're still, Luke 24, while they're still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands, look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. It's not a ghost. He eats stuff. Verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he said to them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead in the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses to these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So now going back to 1 Peter, what Peter is connecting here, what Peter is saying about the prophets in the gospel comes from the lips of Jesus himself where Jesus showed them how the old, what we call the Old Testament was pointing forward to him. So that as Christians, whenever we pick up the Old Testament to read it, we always do so with Jesus' goggles on. We, we have a lens through which we read the Old Testament now. We're, we're looking at the Old Testament, not only what it says in and of itself, but also how it points forward to Christ. So when we read the story of David and Goliath, 
We're not only reading a story of great faith, or we're not only reading a story of God's power, but like now we've got our Jesus goggles on and we're like, there he is. He's the conk, that's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus, you know? So sometimes we read the story of David and Goliath and, and we're like, I'm like David. I'm gonna go out there and conquer my giants. No. <laughs> you and I are the chicken Israelites hiding in our tents whining. That's who we are. David is Jesus who fights the battle for us, who gains the victory for us, who trusts God. And, and we're the Israelites. Once Jesus gains the victory, then we charge out of our tents going, ah, you know, for Narnia. You know, then we're like going out and, and fighting the battle. But we're following Jesus. It's because of his victory and his glorifying God. So we just, we just read the Old Testament and we see how everything was pointing forward to the Lord, the Lord Jesus. What an amazing privileged position we are in as Christians. We're in a privileged position in history where we stand on this side of the cross and empty tomb and we can see what it is that the prophets long to see for all those years. That's our great salvation that we have so what does all this mean for our lives? What, what should we do with this? How, how should this affect us? I mean, this is all interesting, right? But, but what should it do for you Monday morning and what should it do for me Monday morning? What's, what, what is it that, that should help us or change in us when you go to school Monday or when you go to work or you go hang out with your, uh, your friends and have coffee or book club or whatever you're going to do Monday? How should this change us? And, and I think... Probably the main thing is, I, I think this, this passage should increase our sense of awe and wonder at what God has done for us in the gospel. That, that we should be a people who are ooing and awing at what God has done. Or to put it negatively, we should be careful and be aware of losing our awe and wonder at our salvation. Because you can lose it. You, 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 your, awe, your sense of awe and wonder can, can diminish and it can die down, especially in this, this world where there's no reinforcement from the culture saying, yeah, you're right, Jesus is the greatest thing ever and all of history is about him and it's all centered around what he's done for us and that's where all of human history is moving. You're not going to get that message in this world. And so it's easy to lose your awe at God. Have you ever lost your awe? Have you ever had that, that feeling of losing your awe at Jesus and your salvation? You know, think about kids and teenagers here who've been raised in the church. You went to youth, you went to Sunday school, and you went to vacation Bible school, and you went to youth group, and you've heard this all your life, right? Some of you. And it's easy to just have it kind of just go in one ear and out the other, and and not realize what you have. And uh, just, just kind of like all the blessings we have. I have, I have a uh, neighbor next door, and, and he always, he, he calls living here in America living in Disneyland. So I'll be like, how are you doing today? He's like, another day in Disneyland. You know, so that's like our little joke we have. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, we, it, so we take, our, we take our country for granted. We take running water for granted. We take all these blessings for granted. And, and I think in the same way, we can take our salvation for granted. And we hear all these great things, and we're in a church that teaches us these things. And just encourage uh, 
you know, teenagers and kids not to take the gospel for granted. It's easy to do, but it's not just something the kids struggle with. We do it, right? You, you ever walk in church and your mind is just somewhere else? I know this never happens to you either, but you know, you, you're just like, you walk in church and you're like, someone's in my seat. Like, oh, so annoying. Oh, and then you've got to find another place to sit. Then, you know, you're, just, you're sitting there and you're distracted by random things. Or, oh, I don't like this song. Or why, oh, why do we repeat it two times? I wonder to repeat it three, you know. Or, and then we, or, you know, oh, uh, you know what, what's going on? And is someone else going to resign today? And it's just like, ah. Oh. Like, and there's not a sense of awe, right? You, you know, I, I want to, this is like my dream for myself. Every time I walk through those doors on a Sunday morning, I want to feel like I'm walking into the throne room of the king. I just want to come in and be like, I'm ready, Lord. I want you to show me your glory today. Lord, I want to worship you. Lord, I want to see you today. That should be my heart attitude. Like, I'm one of God's saved people, and I'm gathering with his people to worship the Lord? Wow. You know, I want that to be the awe and wonder in my heart. When we're in heaven, that's what it's going to be all the time. And yet that awe just like leaks out, doesn't it? Get sucked away, or maybe you're here and, and you're like me. You uh, you, you do ch- church ministry. Maybe you're on staff with me, or maybe you're an elder. Elders here in the church, or maybe you sing in the choir. Or you lead a growth group or a Sunday school. And you know when th- th- there's a danger in being in ministry, it's so insidious. But you can become so comfortable and careless in handling the things of God because they just get used to it. You know, you're around it all the time. And, and you're just busy doing your thing, and, and then a week goes by, and you realize you've been doing the work of God, but not standing in awe of God. And that awe can leak away. And boy, once you lose your awe of your salvation of Christ, then the door is open for, for all the other stuff to come in. Because here's the thing, human beings are going to be in awe of something. We were designed by God to worship Him. Our, our basic direction is worship. And so if we're not going to worship God, we will worship something else. We worship. That's what we do. <laughs> we're going to be in awe of something. If it's not God, it's going to be iPhone 6S. Or it's going to be the girl over there who's attractive or the guy. Or it's going to be a job or it's going to be a car. It's going to be something because we worship. We worship. And, and, and that's where we start getting, falling into the, the narrative of the world, that the really great thing is whatever is on TV. The great thing is not Christ. The world is just as religious as we are. It's just worshiping different things. So we need to protect this, this awe and wonder that God is doing a great work in human history to save a people for himself, and he's going to bring his kingdom. And that I've been included in that by faith. It's amazing. So how do you stoke up your awe and your wonder? How do you keep it? I suppose it starts with just asking for God's grace in your heart. You know, when, when you realize your heart has grown cold, I, I'm, you know, I've had those seasons in my life where my, my faith is really hot, and I've had those seasons in my life where it's just kind of numb and dull. And, and when, you, when, it, when it dawns on you that you're in a numb and dull season, you just got to run to Christ and be like, Lord... My faith is dull and numb. I, I've lost my affections for you. I, I'm not in awe of you. 
oh, Lord, forgive me. The problem isn't you. (laughs) It's not you, it's me. So whatever you need to do in here, Lord, do that. And just to call upon him and seek him, maybe fast, pray, ask God to renew zeal for Christ in you. Are you here this morning and you still believe, you haven't lost your faith, you haven't walked away from Christ, but maybe you're here this morning and just your, your zeal is kind of low. You know, the, there's still coals there, but there's no flames. Come to the Lord and just ask him to renew your spirit again, your love for him and your awe and wonder at your salvation. Uh, read his word, uh, you know, get into the scriptures. You know, we, we often stand in awe of what we stare at the most. And, and so we need to open up this word and see Christ in the pages of scripture, and that's how you stand in awe of him. And, and when you read the Bible, don't just read it trying to check off a, a box of I'm supposed to do this, but read the Bible with anticipation. Like, I'm going to open this, I'm going to read it until I, I see the glory of Christ here. And so that your heart is filled up. George Mueller, uh, who's a famous uh, 19th century English um, uh, Christian worker who, who ran a famous orphanage, uh, he, he said he would read the Bible every day until his soul was happy in the Lord. So that was, that was how he knew he was done for his Bible reading. Not when he got through a certain amount of material, but when his soul was happy in Christ. And so that's why we read the Bible, is to find the Lord and meet the Lord and learn about Him and to stand in awe of Him. Not just to fill our brain with data, but then to have that go as the fuel that stokes our affections for the Lord. And then talk about what the Lord is doing in each other's lives. This is something I, I, would, I think I need to grow in a lot. Uh, I'm an introvert, so I live inside my own head. And I know, I never say I'm an introvert, people don't believe me. I'm an introvert who's paid to be an extrovert, okay? But I really am an introvert, and I live, in, I live inside my own head. And so I'll, I'll be thinking all these things, but then when I talk to people, I don't often say the things that the Lord is teaching me or cool things I feel like God has been showing me. But, but when you do that, that shares the flame, and it, it stokes other Christians. And when people share things with you, that, that fires you up. So I just encourage you in your conversations as a church, you know, you know, after service and as you're chatting with each other, don't just talk about you know, the weather or how cold it was this morning or whatever, but also talk about you know, what, what, what's something the Lord taught you this morning? What's the Lord doing in your life? And as we, as we take that risk of just kind of sharing some of that heart stuff, like that stokes each other's faith and awe. Because this isn't just a private awe-stoking thing. This is a community of people who are together in awe of Christ. And may the Lord just fill us up with more and more awe of Him. You know, one of the things I'm trying to figure out, because I've never done this before, is, is how do you pastor a church when you know you're about to go to another church? And I don't exactly know how to answer that because I haven't done that. But I think one of the things that's on my heart to do for you as a church, I've done this before, but to really redouble my efforts, is is I just want in my time left here, I want to pray intentionally for great spiritual renewal here. You know, that that as I go, I, I just pray the Lord would awaken this church in a new way. That you're not entering into a season of loss but a season of great new life, new direction, that our church would be filled up with 
awe of Christ in a way perhaps we haven't in some time. So that's what I'm going to be praying for you. And I pray that, that you join me in that, to pray for renewal and awakening that God would send a season of revival upon our church. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you would include us in the divine conspiracy to save sinners for your glory. Lord, thank you. And I pray that you would, you would stoke our awe at that. Oh, Lord, help us never to treat the things of the gospel and the things of God as common. But, Lord, help us to, to always hold as precious and dear our salvation. Oh Lord, I pray that for any cold hearts here today, including my own, that you would rekindle the flame. Lord, I pray for us as a church to be a people who when we gather, when we walk in on Sunday morning, we're not just going through the motions, but we are, we're skipping into the presence of the King, full of anticipation and joy. Oh God, help us to be a people who, who believe the conspiracy theory of Jesus and his resurrection. And God, we pray that that rather than us being chilled by the culture, that as we go out into the world, we might be uh, shedding heat, Lord, that we would be spiritually exothermic, warming up the world around us, sharing this great news with others. Oh, Lord, stir up our zeal. And I do pray, God, that you would bring a season of great awakening and renewal and revival to South Shore Baptist Church. We pray, Lord, that this would be looked back upon years from now, not as a season of loss, but as a season of tremendous growth, where the church was transformed in new ways as people sought you afresh. Oh, Lord, would you do that in this church? Would it be historic, we pray, in Christ's name?